here to fuel your Rockets news. This is the Rockets Fuel Podcast presented by Clutch Fans. I am your host, LaShar Binkley. Of course, you can always find me on Twitter at Binkley Hoops. And you can find my written work at DreamShake. Um, I usually come up with an article every week and may slow down a little bit with the draft being over. But of course, we're about to go right into summer league play. So make sure you're definitely uh, checking that out. Uh, today, I am joined by a very special guest. I'm joined by a person that um, I probably I don't think I've ever told him this, but he was probably one of the first podcast sports podcasts I listened to, and oh, I you got me that, through. Man. Yeah, you got me through a lot of long drives when I used to work downtown back in the day. So it, it's definitely a very uh, it's an honor for me to have him on here. He is the uh, editor for USA Today, uh, Rockets Wire, and also a sports analyst for uh, Sports Talk Seven Ninety. I'm joined by Mr. Ben Devos. How are you doing today? Doing well. How are you? Oh, I'm doing doing great. Um, I mean, we were talking about a little bit before we got on. We were both kind of watching the Astros before we <laughs> jumped on here. So uh, they're kind of in the middle of it right now. So hopefully they can pull it off because as we spoke, you know, before we got on, it was 0-0, uh, bottom of the sixth. So we'll see how that plays out. But, of course, we are here to talk about the Rockets who just had their draft um, a couple of days ago. And that's kind of where I, of course, want to start um, because I was talking with Dave. We did a podcast yesterday, Dave Hardesty of Clutch Fans. We did a podcast yesterday, and he was talking about the party that y'all were attending uh, oh, yeah. a couple of days ago with uh, at Beam with Thug's house. And he gave me his impressions of what was going on, the shock and everything that was going on with him. But that's where I want to start with. What was your initial thoughts when the news started trickling right before the first pick that uh, Jabari Smith wasn't going to be the number one overall pick? Yeah, it was, I would say, surprised, but not stunned. And then from that point on, by the way, that party was total jubilation. You can imagine (laughs) Dave, after all the heat he's taken from Paolo Twitter the last few weeks, uh, (laughs) getting his boy in Shibari. And it was such a positive atmosphere between that. And of course, pretty much universally, people agree the Rockets had a great draft getting three uh, strong prospects and three great values at the picks they had, three, 17, and 29. And uh, Shibari Smith, Ty Ty Washington at 29 and Tari Eason at 17. And yeah. even though later that night, their Astros ended up blowing a 6-3 lead going to the bottom of the night <laughs> yeah. against the hated Yankees, nobody even cared. Because, of course, that night was all about the draft yeah. and what the Rockets had just pulled off. And, you know, to circle back to my initial comment, it did surprise me just because there was so much reporting throughout the process about yeah. Jabari being the favorite for number one and maybe Chet being the alternative. Some people yeah. wondered if Paolo was even in play, but it didn't stun me because I've said this from time to time on Twitter and definitely on my podcast appearances. Actually, a week before, I had uh, Brian Kalbrowski, USA Today's draft guy, uh, on my podcast, The Logger Line, and I actually went through this hypothetical scenario where Orlando or OKC ended up taking um, Paolo and Jabari fell to the Rockets because it was hard to see Chet falling below OKC for a lot yeah. of reasons, just the overall toolbox that he has and the rarity of a prospect. But if you squint hard enough, there are some circumstances where you would take Paolo. I'm not saying he's going to be better. I'm just saying certain circumstances. And to me, when you compare Paolo and Jabari, Jabari is a lot safer. He has a much or the three and D is almost a can't miss when you yeah. look at a guy that's that athletic, that long, that versatile, can shoot that well. But you do wonder about the playmaking and the shot creation. He's just 19 years old, recently turned 19, so it's possible it yeah. comes along in time. But is he just a really good three and D guy, or does he eventually become, you know, I've seen some people throwing out the Kevin Durant comparison. That, that's a long way away. Whereas based on what we've seen from them to this point, Paolo has shown much more in terms of like playmaking, passing, uh, shot creation, more of the traditional superstar model in the NBA. And the thing about a market like Orlando, it's tough for them to get that type of player 
in that setting. They're not a particularly big draw for free agents. And also the guys that they've drafted in recent years, Cole Anthony, uh, Jalen Suggs, Franz Wagner, there's, you know, there's some solid players there, but there's no one that you can point to and say, wow, go get a bucket. And holy, true. are you kidding me? JJ just homered for the Astros and it's one not. <laughs> well, there we go. Yeah, look, I was like, <laughs> we who were homered? Are you kidding me of all the guys to homer? Um, we'll see <laughs> the Yankees fan that gets the ball if they try and pull the same leverage move that the kid in Houston infamously did a few days ago. But anyway, yeah. <laughs> back, to, back to the Rockets and the point. For Orlando, that's a tough fit to get potentially the alpha dog on a contender. Now, maybe there's a very small chance that Paolo actually gets to that level, but it's there. Whereas if you look at the Rockets, they feel a lot better because you have Jalen Green, who should be, within a couple of years, an elite scorer. He can already create his own shot. You also have a couple of guys in KPJ and Shingun who are at least pretty good in that area. So I would just say in general, Houston is set up more with playmaking and shot creation than Orlando is. That's not me saying that Houston is way better than Orlando. No, Orlando has other strengths. Specifically, they're a lot longer going into the draft. They were a lot yeah. longer than the Rockets defensively and some of the things that they can do on that end. And they were and that's why they were better than the Rockets on the defensive end last season. But I think just strictly from the lens of offense and what the difference is between Paolo and Jabari, and also for that matter, defense, the types of guys they have on the team, you can say that, hey, Orlando might want to take a home run swing with a guy like Paolo. And maybe he doesn't ultimately fulfill that potential. But the fact that it's there is meaningful to a small market team like that. And so that's why you know I was surprised that – they made the pick just because there was so much reporting that Paolo may not even be in play at all and Jabari was the favorite. But I wasn't stunned because when you think about it, it does make some sense. And after the draft, you know, I talked to some people with the Rockets around the league, just, you know, sending out texts trying to figure out what the hell happened <laughs> with everything. And the best analysis I got, and when I think about it, it makes a lot of sense. Um, Paolo at least at this stage, may have a better shot than Jabari of eventually being a top five player. But Jabari is much more likely to be a top 20 player. And some people listening may hear hear that and say, how does that work? (laughs) Well, no, what we're talking about is the 10% sort of extreme upside scenario. Paolo may theoretically have a gear that Jabari, at least at this point, it's hard to envision with what he's shown to date getting to. But whether he actually achieves that type of ceiling, that's obviously a long shot. And so when you go into the floor, the diversity of Jabari's skills gives him a much higher um, floor scenario than than Paolo. And for the Rockets, because they've gotten some offensive creators already, I think that, well, I think that they feel better that they can take a high floor guy and be excited about that. And I also think that there's other ways the Rockets have a few more options to build out their team than the Magic too. You know, we know a year from now, the Rockets are going to have up to $70 million in cap space. We also know that there's not going to be that many teams that are bad in 2023, so the Rockets may get another high pick next year. So even if Jabari is just a really good, I don't want to call him a role player, but let's just say not a superstar along the lines of Jalen Green, not that type of upside, then yeah. that's fine because be it free agency, be it uh, another high draft pick in 2023, there's other avenues if they feel like they need to get a second you know, home run type guy like Jalen Green potentially can be for them to get that second uh, big time creator. Whereas the Magic, I don't know that they feel that they have that. And so that's why I think, you know, again, surprised, yes, based on the reporting, but not shocked because you can understand it from uh, Orlando's perspective, or at least I can when when you think about it. And then the bottom line for the Rockets, it's a scenario I had not really thought of because nearly everyone had Jabari off the board at one for the past month. But the same person that I was talking to about, you know, Paolo top five being more likely than Jabari, but Jabari being much more likely top 20 than Paolo yeah. would be when you look at the odds. Um, the same person told me that you should probably sleep a lot better, you being the Rockets, yeah. if you have Jabari, simply because it's very tough to envision him busting. And that's sort of where I've come to on this. Yeah, and that's, I mean, really good point as far as with Bancaro has a, a lot more, like you said, a, a better chance of becoming a superstar in the league than Jabari. But at the same time, and I know people hate hearing the word fit when it comes to a team that's rebuilding. But at the same time, when you're looking at it, Bancaro does have some of the same similar skill sets as Alperin Shangun, who at this point is definitely going to be your starting center. So, I mean, 
it may actually work out best for uh, both players. Um, I mean, Jabari yep. doesn't have to worry about being the ultimate playmaker that he would have to be in Orlando because, I, like you said, they like Jalen Suggs. Um, they like uh, Franz uh, Wagner. They like those players, but those aren't players that are going to be the go-to 30-point mm-hmm. potential type guys every game. So it may work out best for all you know people concerned yeah. when it comes to that. Yeah, Jabari in Houston will get to play to his strengths a lot more, or his initial strengths. And then his weaknesses, which is obviously the shot creation and the playmaking, it's much easier to gradually build those if you're not asked to do too much too soon. And I think in Houston, because of Jalen, KPJ, and Shingun, he's not going to be asked to do that much out of his comfort zone too early. And so there's a better shot that he, you know, over time, maybe he does develop into that Kevin Durant upside that we've heard Kendrick Perkins and other people talking about, because he's not going to be do it uh, day one, and that's potentially where you get some sort of bad habits if you try too soon with um, developing these guys. And the other thing we should point out, you know, I mentioned in the initial question about the Rockets having other avenues to get, you know, a second or third peak shot creator if that's what they need or playmaker, and Jabari doesn't develop into that. We should also point out that it also gives, and you touched on this, Shingun and Kevin Porter Jr. a much better shot to potentially become sure. those guys. And there's been a lot made over the past month. Like people have asked about, you know, how do these guys fit in with Paolo? And the response has generally been, you know, you look at guys like KPJ and Shingun as, you know, bonuses. You're not yeah. on them to 100% hit at a starting level or better. If they do, it's great, but it's not like Jalen Green, where because of the investment, you're obviously expecting him to be the guy, or at least a very good starter at a bare minimum. You know, KPJ and Shingun are a little bit more of the, um, you know, you hope they work out, but if they don't, for whatever reason, it's not devastating to your franchise by any means. With that said, while you not necessarily are expecting them to become stars, there is value in giving them the chance to do so, and maybe they do overachieve relative to, in Shingun's case, his draft slot at 16, and KPJ's case, what little the Rockets traded for him because of some of the off-court issues and whatnot. And I guess you can say uh, KPJ's draft slot as well, although part of the reason that he's fell to number 30 in the 2019 draft was the same sort of off-court issues that led to him being available for so cheap uh, out of Cleveland. But maybe one or both of those guys, you know, overachieve their... um, reasonable expectations and then they become that secondary playmaker or shot creator after Jalen Green that you need because those guys are going to have a much better shot with um with Jabari than you would have with Paolo because Paolo is going to need touches obviously Jalen needs a a lot of touches that's who you're going to run your offense through especially now that Christian Wood is gone and yeah there can be such a thing as too many cooks in the kitchen and KPJ and Shingun especially because Shingun hasn't really shown a three-point shot yet these are guys to unlock them at this stage they're going to need the ball and they're going to get more chances to play make and do things that they might not have with Paolo so while I'm not going to say for sure that either of those guys is going to hit at a starting level or above there is some value in the fact that hey having Jabari around does give you a better fit for your existing players and to sort of unlock and maximize them and so yeah Shingun and KPJ if one or both of them can you know have a big year next year then that can potentially change your outlook and maybe they become that secondary guy in terms of playmaking uh to Jalen and they're going to have a better opportunity now that you know, Jabari is just not going to need as many touches immediately as uh, as Paolo would have. And I think another guy, you can even point out uh, Jay Sean Tate. A lot of people have been worried yeah. about, you know, Tate's going in the final year of his contract. What's his role long term? Because we all know what he can bring defensively, but the shooting and the impact on floor spacing, that's a very valid concern. Well, now all of a sudden, if Tate is hypothetically at the three, his lack of floor spacing is a lot more viable if you have Jabari Smith at the four. Yeah. Like a front court of Tate, Paolo, and uh, Shingun, unless either Paolo or Shingun took a big leap from three, it was going to be tough for that to be uh, really viable. Whereas with Tate uh, or with Jabari, all of a sudden it might be more viable because you do have that floor spacing uh, th- that he brings. So I do think there's value to the Rockets in the fact that Jabari, you know, it's not just what he brings you himself, but he is a cleaner short term fit than Paolo is. And Again, this is not a short-term decision. It's about the long-term. Like I can, I know some people are listening and they're thinking, okay, you know, he may be a cleaner fit in the short-term, but this is about the long-term. You want stars. Yes, that's true. But if that short-term fit can help you develop other guys like, you know, we've talked about Shingun, 
uh, Kevin Porter Jr., Jay Sean Tate, maybe Josh Christopher gets a bigger role this next year, and so on and so forth, then there's long-term value in that too if all of a sudden because of Jabari, you're in a better position to develop your other young guys the next couple of years. Yeah, I mean, that's all great points, especially about your current players, because even with Jalen Green, we know regardless who's on the team, Jalen Green's going to get his touches. But at the mm-hmm. same time, with the Jabari, he doesn't need the ball necessarily in his hand um, from the start of the shot clock to the end of the shot clock. He's the type of player that's going to – he can get his shot off of different plays that you're running or even mm-hmm. off of Jabari's – I mean, uh, Jalen Green's gravity yep. that he started to develop, especially towards the end of the year. So that's a great point as far as – the players now have more room to grow, especially players like uh, Kevin Porter Jr., who would have definitely probably taken a step back, uh, especially as a facilitator, if uh, you know, if you have Ban Carroll here along yep. with Shane Goon, because both those guys are going to be your primary facilitators. So, yeah, now that gives them more room to grow. And I also think it helps in the future because even though Ban Carroll is probably going to be maybe the better overall player eventually. Mm-hmm. You still, it's easier to build around Jabari because he fits in with anybody. You can put anybody around Jabari, and he's going to be able to, yeah. um, you know, fulfill his and, role or maybe exceed it. Yeah. And the same holds true, by the way, with Tari Eason, the second of the three yeah. first round picks, because I think you know I've asked around, would you have still taken Eason if? Ben Carroll was the pick. And the answer I got was probably, but the fit is all the easier with Jabari because the one question with Isid, you know, he was a bad shooter his first college season. He improved to pretty solid this past year, but is that jump shot sustainable, especially as he goes out to NBA three-point range? That's a question. It may take some time, but again, as we were talking about with Tate, the same holds true with Tari Eason and that you can play a non-shooter a little bit more when you have Jabari. And so that might help um, Tari Eason's development as well. But yeah, I think to get back to, by the way, to your point on KPJ, I think that's something that a lot of Rockets Twitter might be sleeping on a little bit is the potential for a KPJ breakout next year. I'm not saying it's yeah. going to happen, but I am curious. That seven-game stretch to end the season was absolutely electric. He's putting up like yeah, it was. eight and seven per game. That was, of course, after the veterans went out. No Christian Wood, no Eric Gordon, no Dennis Schroeder. So he got more touches. And of course, the catch and shoot numbers were there all season long. Yeah. But we really saw him start to get more comfortable in terms of when to drive, when to facilitate, and getting sort of the right balance between the point guard dynamics and when to sort of create his own offense. And there's a chance that that can carry over. I think people forget, well, number one, he was hurt a lot for the first half of the season, the ongoing quad issues. But the yeah. other thing, too, I know it was technically his third season. But more or less, last year was year two for KPJ. The actual year two was basically nothing because it started with COVID. Then he had the absolute circus that happened in Cleveland. And, of course, some of that was his fault. But I'm just speaking strictly from like a basketball standpoint and, you know, the lack of development. He didn't get to play in Cleveland. He started this year two in the G League, only got basically a cup of coffee a couple of months with the Rockets after the All-Star break in a shortened season. Um, there really wasn't a ton. Of course, the flashes, he had a 50-point 10 assist game against the Bucs, but he really did not have that many opportunities this past year, uh, or, or the two years ago, I should say, with the Rockets. And so really this past year, it, you know, it just felt like his development was a little bit stunted based on all the circumstances. And again, some of those are of his own doing, but the reality is that last year, in my opinion, was more like year two for KPJ. And if there's one thing we know about young NBA players, it's often between year two and year three that you sort of have the leap. So when you factor in all the circumstances of how his year two was really cut back and then start of last season, he wasn't himself medically, missed a lot of time as well. And then you look at how he ended last year, even though it's year four, it it would not surprise me. And of course, he's still very young. I think he just turned 22. It, It would not surprise me if next year we see, you know, a lot of Rockets fans expected going into this past season to see a jump from KPJ, which at least across the board, it didn't happen. Now, he did take a jump in his shooting, which is noteworthy, but at least overall numbers didn't happen. But it wouldn't shock me if you do see that jump between last season and this coming season with KPJ and now having Jabari to space the floor and not taking touches, that might further enable that. So if there's one thing going into next season that I think people around the NBA might be sleeping on, it's that there is uh, potential especially with the way the roster is constructed now. And by the way, it's going to be a contract year for KPJ too. So he's yeah. going to be financially incentivized to go out and have a great year. It, it could be a type of year where you see him jump into maybe being a, you know, 18 and eight type guy. Yeah. And that's something I always try to point out to people because, you know, a lot of people know that I'm, I'm definitely a fan of, of KPJ. I know his limitations that he definitely has stuff he has to improve on. But as you pointed out, 
first year, of course, he wasn't even playing point guard. He was playing small forward. And then that was just a disastrous year for many reasons in Cleveland. And then he comes to Houston. And as you pointed out, I mean, he hasn't really had a lot of time to actually get mm. used to playing point guard. I mean, most point guards in the league have been playing point guards their entire life. They didn't really just start playing point guard when they got in the NBA. So, I mean, it's a, definitely a learning experience and you're trying to learn the best way to play with Jalen Green. And also you're playing with basically a, a really young coach, even though he's been in the league for a long time, but he's still a, a relatively young head coach. So it's been a lot of things that all of them have to get used to and as far as working together. And mm. something – Something I wanted to ask you before we move on to Tari Eason um, and as far as his defense and how he's going to work with um, Jabari Smith with that. If the Rockets had drafted, for instance, Evan Mobley last year, mm-hmm. do you think there's a chance that if they were still the number three pick this year that they may have looked at a Jaden Ivey instead of going with yes. Jabari Smith? Yes, for sure. Or they might have considered trading up for Paolo in that scenario. Yeah. I think a big part of why they were okay with Jabari Smith, again, is that they feel like they already do have a guy in Jalen Green who's going to be an elite scorer and shot creator. Whereas if you had Mobley, I think you would have been a little bit boxed in and felt the need to go after, you know, maybe you trade up for Paolo in that scenario because you're more desperate to get that type of upside or Jaden Ivey. Yeah, I, I do think the calculus would be different when we talk about, you know, the limitations of Jabari right now as a playmaker. Uh, it, it would be a lot different if you did not have Jalen Green. So for people that have second-guessed that decision, I think it's that decision that gave you a lot more options in this draft. And to me, the, that's honestly one of the big selling points, by the way, going forward with Jabari. Um, and I think it's really the combination of Jabari and Jalen. You have so many different ways that you can build the team moving forward. That optionality is really important as we head towards 2023. And boy, a year from now is going to be crazy because a year from now is going to be the last time they have a really high pick, at least of their own. We'll see what happens with Brooklyn. Um, I'm assuming they don't win too many games next year. Never know. But, you know, let's assume that it's another year about development. And, you know, the, the bottom line is that even if they're better, there's just so many NBA teams they're trying to win right now. It's hard to see how many teams they legitimately pass this soon without, you know, a veteran addition, which probably isn't going to come until they have uh, at least major veteran additions until they have that cap space in 2023. But as far as what you do with it, I mean, when you have Jalen in place as that elite scorer that you can trust potentially be the number one on offense, the alpha for a contender. That's what we all hope. And to this point, there's been nothing to suggest that he won't be. There's still a development to go to get there, but we're just talking about what we can reasonably know at this point. And then with Jabari and Easton as well, the fact that they're so versatile, you know, the Rockets, um, Raphael Stone mentioned late Thursday night in his press conference about, you know, when they talk about positions, they're looking at more defense. And they said right now they think that Easton can defend one through five. And Jabari, three through five, although the college numbers shows, at least in college, he was capable of defending ones and twos as well. And Rafael you know, suggested that maybe over time you could do that at the NBA level as well. But because you have that type of versatility and floor spacing, there's just so many different ways that you can build the team around a Jalen and Jabari foundation. And theoretically, we can throw Easton in that mix as well. Because you do have that alpha, and then there's so much versatility. And where that really helps you is that you go into next year's draft, which is going to be so impactful, and then free agency when you're going to have all that cap space, and you can be opportunistic. You don't have to worry about getting just the best fit and saying, oh, is this guy going to fit with me? And maybe I have to pass up the better player because he's got a good fit. No, there's so many different ways that you can build the roster with a guy like Javari that's that versatile that it, it makes it all the more likely that you can maximize your draft capital and your financial way next year because there's just so many different ways that you can build that supporting cast yeah and i don't want to go too far off topic but when you brought flexibility that kind of brought me back to the whole argument of when the rockets traded james harden and people were just astounded that the rockets didn't take back ben simmons or karis avert or jared allen and i mean this kind of goes right to that like this is the exact reason why Rafael Stone did not want to bring those players back because they wanted that flexibility. Because, of course, if you bring some of those players in and you're stuck with their contract for two or three years, then you're almost stuck having to build around those players. So now you don't have to do that because you have pretty yeah. much basically a bunch of 19 to 20 year old on rookie contracts that you can actually yep. absolutely work around. So and, that's a great point about that. Yep. And the other part of that equation that everyone seems to forget, on top of not wanting to put so much salary on your books long term, which you would have with, you know, the likes of Levert and Allen. Yeah. Also, you don't have Jalen Green in that scenario. Yeah. That was part of the logic with going with Oladipo is that, you know, he did have higher upside 
because he was an all-star player just a couple of years ago. And to be fair to Oladipo, we did see some flashes in the playoffs. And, you know, for his sake, I hope he can get a little bit of that back. But the bottom line is that either he was going to hit and somehow they'd overachieve that way. Or if he didn't hit, which obviously was the case and got injured and all that, (laughs) then you could bottom out. And that's what led you to Jalen Green and keeping your draft pick last year. So on top of the flexibility, you also probably don't have Jalen Green, which is now your foundation if you get LaVert and Allen. So, yeah, in my opinion, that uh, that thinking is aging extremely well. And then you add all the uncertainty in Brooklyn on top of it. Yeah, that's just icing on the cake with the Brooklyn situation. Yep, um, for sure. Before we wrap it up, the first segment, I wanted to ask you about, um, of course, Tyrese and that, that you mentioned a little bit earlier. And also we're going to talk a little bit about Ty Ty Washington. But as far as Tyrese and how he fits with Jabari, you, you just uh, spoke about that, how they can each switch mm-hmm. between multiple uh, yeah. uh, positions and guard different players, and that's something that you probably wasn't going to get from Bancaro. I mean, how much more of the Rockets' defense is going to be approved next year? And then you have to also factor in, we saw flashes from Jalen improving on defense, yeah. and then hopefully KPJ gets there as well. And even though Alper and Shangun may not be ever be a rim protector, the traditional rim protector, we did see him at least give the effort on defense to where he's not yeah. a complete, you know, um, you know, chair on defense where people can just go yeah. around him every time. So how much better will the Rockets defense be next year? Yeah, it's a tough call because typically defense is harder for yeah. a rookie than offense. That's something Raphael Stone pointed out in his post-draft press conference. So you don't, even with guys that have the tools, you don't want to put too much on them too soon. And it's not just individually. A lot of it's just the team concepts and how much more complicated it is, the offenses you're going up against at the NBA level. And just mentally, you have to process things so much more quickly than you do in college. With that said, both Jabari and Tari seem like highly intelligent, not just players, but people. And so maybe that gives them an edge in terms of picking up things pretty quickly. I I hope so. The other thing, though, you can point out, you know, Rafael, in terms of generally speaking, defense is rough for rookies. But then again, you can look at Herb Jones last year, who was a rookie and clearly made a huge impact. And we saw actually you're for that Jay Sean Tate here in Houston. So while it's not likely, it can happen, especially if you can defend that many positions. So it's sort of like I, I go into it guarded, but I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't totally write off them being a lot better defensively, just because when you have those types of skills, I mean, clearly they're going to be much longer than last year. They're going to be much more athletic. I do think it's fair to be concerned about like the team stuff, the rotations, the communications with it, with a team that young. But I would just say I would keep an open mind because we have seen some rookies, Herb Jones and Jay Sean Tate come to mind that have been better defensively from day one or close to day one, year one, I should say, than expected. And I do think there's some value in all three of these guys. You know, we joke about the whole SEC thing because they all came yeah. from SEC schools, Jabari from Auburn, Tari Eason from LSU, Ty Ty Washington from Kentucky. But there are some high-intensity games uh, defensively in college basketball. That's something they stress. You know, Rafael Stone values like the G League model. That's where they got uh, Jalen Green. And so in many ways, that's sort of the attractive model these days in the NBA because, of course, you learn NBA concepts quicker. You develop around other professionals. And in some ways, that's beneficial. But also, if you actually watch those G League games, especially the Ignite, which I know you do, the – there can be a palpable defensive intent in some of those. You can have some of those settings that remind you of basically AAU camps at times. Whereas in college basketball, it's it's interesting because I'm not a big college basketball fan because some of the offenses are like watching paint dry, in my opinion. <laughs> True, but <yes. laughs> those coaches do ride them hard when it yeah. comes to uh, defensive intensity. So it sort of goes both ways. Like I think you know, the guys that come out of the G League program and that pathway, they're much better off, especially on offense, because they're more familiar with NBA concepts and a professional lifestyle. But I yeah. do think that, you know, having three college guys, and it's kind of interesting because last year, you know, the Rockets had four first rounders, but Josh Christopher was the only guy who played college basketball, and he did it for one year in yeah. a COVID shortened season. I think Arizona State only played like 15, 16 games, something like that. The others, um, obviously, Shingun and Garuba were international, and Jalen from the G League. Whereas this year, you're going to have three guys who played upper echelon college basketball. And there's a lot of things about college basketball that aren't good. And I could sit here all day and talk about how unattractive and aesthetically not pleasing a lot of college basketball is. But strictly within the confines of defense, which is what you were asking about, I do think that playing high-intensity college basketball for teams that, you know, are tournament-worthy at a minimum – 
that's the one side of the ball where I think maybe you do have a slight advantage relative to, you know, the international guys or the G League going in. You do have, if nothing else, just a commitment and awareness to the importance of that side of the ball because college coaches will ride you on it, or at least most of them will. And so that's the one thing, you know, I would say, I'm not saying that I'm optimistic about a huge jump in year one, but given the backgrounds, given the tools, and given the fact that there have been some outliers lately, Herb Jones and Jay Shantade, again, the forefront of the list, I would keep an open mind that maybe these guys have a bit more of an impact in uh, year one than Raphael Stone and Steven Silas are currently selling. I think some of that is just not wanting to put too much pressure on them and too many expectations. And I hope that's one of those things, set a low bar, and then maybe they end up clearing it. Yeah, and also, I mean, of course, the Rocks are one of the worst defensive teams last year, so they basically have no no way to go but up. But, I mean, like you're saying, I, I think that them playing in a big-time conference definitely helps. And also, that kind of leads me to my uh, final question for this first segment about Ty Ty Washington. Mm-hmm. Um, you had mentioned it in, uh, also about how college basketball is not a direct correlation with the NBA, especially when the offenses that run. Yeah. And I think that's what Ty Ty Washington kind of ran into with um, mm-hmm. playing at Kentucky because he played a lot of off ball when he did play full-time point guard. You saw where, he, I mean, he yep. had a game where he broke John Wall's uh, assist, assist record. At 17. Yep. Yeah. So, I mean, you can't always judge how they played in college, you know, and kind of make that's how they're going to play in the NBA. So what's kind of your opinion on Ty Ty Washington and what the Rockets can expect from him? Because, of course, the Rockets already have Dacia Knicks um, that they signed to a, a contract mm-hmm. last year. But Ty Ty Washington brings some things that Dacia Nix may not bring as far as being a more polished offensive player. Um, he may not be the distributor that Nix is, but he does have, you know, some of those capabilities as well. So what's kind of your opinion on that pick at 29 uh, with uh, Ty Ty Washington? Yeah, I think – and sorry, I got distracted. Uh, Altuve just yeah. went deep, and you can – you know what that's doing to fans <laughs> at Yankee Stadium. I mean, oh, I'm sure they're cheering. <laughs> no better karma than that. But um, – yeah, as far as Ty Ty Washington, I, I think the biggest thing that I see in him is just a hedge. He gives you yeah. he gives you a greater buffer zone when it comes to the guys that you have in the backcourt that you do have questions about. You know, with Josh Christopher, he showed flashes last year, but obviously small sample. With KPJ, there's the off-court stuff, and then there's his contract. Until there's an extension or an agreement after next season, it's fair to wonder, you know, where is his long-term fit until yeah. the ink is dry on that contract? With Dacian Nix, I know they're high on him, and he had a great year in the G League, but there's a reason that he went undrafted. Now, the biggest reason he went undrafted was the fitness levels, and so hopefully that uh, the routine he's got now that has him in much better shape continues. Um, because, yeah, the Rockets told me early on that they loved him. Yeah. You know, Jonathan Fagan said on uh, Dave's podcast a few weeks ago, the Rockets viewed Dacian as a lottery-level talent. Yeah. I, I fully believe it. I, I asked about Dacian last summer before he even played in the G League, and I was told by somebody with the Rockets that, yeah, the only reason he wasn't that he wasn't drafted and probably was not drafted in the first round was because of his fitness. And they felt yeah. that they really had something that they could just get his weight under control. And to this point, that's what happened. But again, all of these are questions. And even if we reason for optimism and all of those things um you know like let's say that you feel it's you know two-thirds likely that kpj is going to stay long term and hit and two-thirds likely that you know nicks is going to translate to the nba level and stay in shape and two-thirds likely that um you know josh christopher builds on what he did this past season then all of a sudden you add in all of those say 66 percent chances and it becomes a lot less than 66 percent that uh, all of them happen. So even if I feel like a lot of people on Twitter will look at these scenarios and say, well, yeah, but any of them are unlikely. Yeah, but in any of these scenarios, you know, if you have three or four unlikely scenarios, the odds are one of those unlikelies is actually going to happen. And that's where Ty Ty Washington gives you some really useful insurance, a hedge, if you will, against one of those other guys. My guess is that, you know, we'll see what he does in, in summer league, but my guess is that he gets a lot of time in the Valley this year for the G League. And, yeah. you know, Dacian gets the first crack at the backup point guard job because he's a year ahead of Ty Ty and you know he earned it with his play with the Vipers last year and I think that's something the Rockets also want to do is promote a culture internally that you know nothing is given and you know there's a few exceptions to that like certainly if you're a top five pick like Jalen or Jabari barring extreme circumstances you're going to start from day one because that's just what you do with an asset that high but other than that you know I think you're going to have to earn it and so I think he'll my guess is that he plays a lot in the G League Dacian and uh, Josh Christopher get the the lion's share this year when everybody's healthy, knock on wood, because of course many times yeah. people are not healthy and that may give Ty Ty a chance um, 
in year one. But I think the big thing is that, you know, develop him as a point guard, as you mentioned, he didn't really get to showcase his true game at Kentucky. Give him a chance as the point guard in the G League. Let him go out and do his thing. And, you know, I don't know exactly what his role is long term, but I can just say that the odds suggest that out of, you know, KPJ, Dacian, and Josh, for basketball reasons, salary, off-court, just the odds suggest that one of those may not work out. And that's where Ty Ty Washington can really help you give some long, do some long-term uh, insurance in that backcourt. Yeah. I mean, that's definitely a good point because as much as we, you know, get attached to a lot of these players, especially the young players when they get here, I mean, in all reality, in two or three years when Rockets are really competing, all these players are not going to be here. So more than likely one way or another, like you said, with contracts, with trades, with, you know, injuries, whatever it is, not all these players are going to be here, so it's definitely good to have, you know, a Dacia Knicks and a Ty Ty Washington just in case one of those players don't work out. So, I mean, that's definitely a great point. Um, that's going to do it for the first segment. In the second segment, I want to get Ben's opinion on the actual rotation that we may see going in next year. Of course, we still have to get through uh, Summer League and also the training camp, but I want to get Ben's opinion on how the Rockets are going to play out their rotation next year because for the most part, um, their starting lineup is set in probably three or four of the positions. But there are some questions about backup point guard, which we were just talking about, and small forward uh, going to next year. So I'm going to get up Ben's opinion on that. So please stick around. And welcome back to the Rockets Fuel Podcast, presented by Clutch Fans. Of course, I am joined by Ben DeVos of USA Today, Rockets Wire, and Sports Analyst for Sports Talk 790. And in the first segment, of course, we talked about the draft that just happened and how that's going to play out and how that's going to figure into the Rockets uh, team coming in this next year. Um, but in the second segment, I want to talk a little bit more about the actual rotations that's coming up because, um, as I mentioned before, we got all um, went into break. Um, most of the starting lineup is set now, especially with Christian Wood being traded. Um, we already know that the backcourt is set. We know that Jabari Smith is going to be starting more than likely, and so is uh, Shane Goon. But uh, I want to get Ben's opinion on what do you see as far as small four? Because as much as people tend to forget sometimes, Eric Gordon is still yeah. on the roster. So yes. he's going to factor into it, and the Rockets still absolutely that, love Eric Gordon. Yeah. Um, to, no, yeah. No, go ahead. No, I was just going to say today, as we sit here June 25th, that's the key variable. And with Eric yeah. on the roster, in my opinion, if he's on the roster, he is going to start. And I do think that it's not a given. There's a reason why we've heard reports this week uh, from credible reporters. Ryan Windhorst of ESPN said the Suns and Sixers were poking around. Yeah. Um, who was it? Keith Pompey at Philadelphia Inquirer said on draft night that the Sixers were trying to put together a deal. Don't know if that's going to happen because now they brought in DeAnthony Melton. So yeah. I don't know if they still have the same need. But the bottom line is that the Rockets have clearly at least poked around on Gordon. So we don't want to say it's a hundred percent that he's there, but if we take it as things stand today, June 25th, and he's on the roster, there's a reason that the Rockets are not trading Eric just to trade him. And people have wondered that, you know, going back to the deadline, because of course he's an older guy and we've seen the line in the sand they've drawn on John Wall, who I expect to get bought out relatively soon. But the thing is they value Eric, not just off the court because yeah, you know, a veteran around that can tell these guys, you know, how to conduct themselves is important, but you don't have to have a player uh, in your rotation to do that. You, you know, you could keep uh, Boban, which they may do and have, you know, that kind of guy helping you off yeah. the court. No, the reason that they're giving minutes to Eric is that they believe he helps the young guys on the floor as well. Cause he's an elite shooter and elite. Uh, I don't know if I don't want to say he's an elite defender. He can be an elite yeah. defender. We've seen that at the playoffs um, at a bare minimum, a very good defender, and a guy who can space the floor, you know, shooting out to 27, 28 feet, not just threes, but going well beyond the three-point line, the uh, four-point line that, you know, Jackson Gatlin <laughs> pointed out at uh, Friday's rookie intro press conference yeah. is now in place on the Toyota Center practice court. You know, that has a lot of value with the floor spacing and how it opens up the game for guys, for your guards, your young guys like Jalen, KPJ, Josh Christopher, and so on and so forth. So in my opinion, that's why the Rockets have drawn a hard line in the sand on uh, Eric Gordon, even going into the last year, or potentially last year, there is a team option for the year after that, of Eric Gordon's contract. It's because they do legitimately see value to the scenario of keeping him, not just as a raw, raw guy on the bench, but yeah. literally what he does on the court and what that means, not just in wins and losses, but what it does for the young players and helping them um, you know, get more confidence by you know, not having as many missed defensive uh 
blunders as a team and having more yeah. open driving lanes and so on and so forth. So my guess is that if the Rockets like Eric Gordon enough to where even a super late first round pick isn't enough to move him, you know, we saw that was for Christian. It's clearly not for Eric. They want more than, say, pick 26 in an average draft to move Eric. That's pretty clear by now. So that tells me pretty strongly that if Eric is around, they value him at a high enough level that he is going to play. If Eric Gordon was valued you know, low enough to where you might just give him like a 20 minutes per game off the bench roll, they trade him because 100%. I, I don't, I don't believe this. I know this 100%. They have had first round offers for Eric Gordon. If, and if he was just going to be solely a 20 minutes per game guy, if you keep him, they, it makes all the sense in the world to trade him in that scenario for a first round pick. Cause he's not going to be playing that much for you anyway. The yeah. fact that they do value him more highly than say the pick they got for Christian Wood should tell you pretty strongly that if he's around, he's going to play at the at a minimum upper twenties and at times, you know, low thirties, like legitimately starters minutes. And he's another guy, by the way, you know, we're talking about Jabari's unique skill set. Rafael didn't even give an NBA comp because he's so unique. That extra length that Jabari has as far as starting him theoretically at a four might make it a little bit easier to start a yeah. Six foot three, six foot four, Eric Gordon, whatever he's officially listed at, at the three, where theoretically he's in that three man backcourt. Now, granted, you do have uh, KPJ at six foot six as your point guard, so that offsets it yeah. a little bit, and he can certainly get a, his fair share of rebounds as well. But, you know, that's one thing that Eric can do. But yeah, in my opinion, if he's around, he is starting. And, you know, the big implication that I have. Certainly, that would push Jay Sean Tate to a bench role. And then you have Tari Eason as well, Usman Garuba. Just reading the tea leaves, I would be surprised at this point if KJ Martin sticks. Just because you have the report that he's looking around uh, or inquired recently about a trade per Kelly Eco of The Athletic. And then you just look at how the team is currently constructed in the front court. If Eric stays, I mean, even if Eric goes and you start um, Jay Sean Tate at the three, well, they love Eason. They they love Garuba. It's still going to get pretty crowded very quickly. Yeah. Again, like KJ apparently inquired about a, a trade just after learning the Rockets had number three. And now you add in Eason as well. And they're potentially going after, according to Fagan, a center in free agency. Like those minutes are going to get very tight and something's going to have to give. And my guess is that you know, I like KJ as a player. It's just if you're deciding between, you know, which of these veterans, like between, say, KJ and Tate, do you keep long term and you're sort of close in your evaluations, then, yeah, the fact that one of them, you know, we know Tate's a huge leader guy, loved in the club, and say the other guy's asking around about getting traded, then, yeah, that might, if it's close, nudge you in that direction. It's not that you would trade him just because he asked. He is under contract for two more years at a very cheap rate, but maybe that helps you get more trade value too. Because yeah, that's the big question. As it stands right now, um, you know, I I have a tough time seeing, that's another thing too, like he's ahead of Eason in the pecking order as it currently stands. So like if you started games right now, I feel like you would have to uh, let KJ be the guy, but but I think they want to play Eason. I think he's someone, you know, 17 is that, in terms of immediate minutes, 17 is a weird spot. Like yeah. when you pick at three, Jabari, that guy's 100% going to play, just like Jalen last year at two. And if it's a pick in the 20, part immediately they're going to go to the G League, like we saw Josh and Usman do at the start of last yeah. year. The middle is tricky. They can go G League. They can play. It sort of depends on how your roster is currently constructed. But with Easton especially being, I believe, the oldest player, he's 21, that's been drafted in the, uh, the Raphael Stone administration – my guess is that they want him to play relatively soon, that he's not really a G League guy, especially because he brings so much defensive versatility like we talked about, and that was where there's, if they were at their weakest last year. So my guess is that, um, you know, as it currently stands, you would have Tate, um, Eason, and Garuba as your three front court guys off the bench. Now, if Gordon gets traded then you could start Tate at the three. You would have um, Eason and Garuba. And it sounds like they're probably going to add a backup center. So we'll see um, what happens with that. And maybe in that scenario, there's a greater path for KJ Martin. But just, but even then, 
I think the priority is on the younger guys that they see higher upside in, especially on the defensive end. So, it, you know, when I just go through the scenarios, unless you have some big consolidation trade, and maybe there is, but, you know, we can't talk about it now because we have no idea what it is or what it would be, then it looks – KJ to me looks like, you know, he might get squeezed anyway. And now with him potentially looking around, it, it may make sense to move on from him, especially because with two years left on a cheap contract, maybe you get, you know, a pretty decent trade return on that. And then – and then the backcourt, I think, is fairly simple. Um, you know, KPJ, uh, Jalen, and Josh are the three priorities. And then, you know, at least to start the year, I'd say the token 10 to 12-minute DJ Augustine role will now go to uh, yeah. Dacian Nix. And, you know, the big question that I have, um, you know, we talked about the frontcourt, we talked about the backcourt. It's at center. And maybe, you know, they, it sounds like they are looking to – sign a guy externally. You can also play Garuba there, even though he's a little undersized. We saw him have success at the end of the year. Um, I guess that's the one position that I do think that Rockets fans should have a little more skepticism over. Um, I think a lot of people just see Christian moving and saying, okay, now the starting spot is open for Shingun and we move. And that's just the way it is. Well, the thing is, Shingun per 36 minutes last year averaged 5.2 fouls and that was primarily playing against backups. Now he's going to be playing against starters. And I know as the, you know, the case for optimism, as the season moved along, he did foul a little bit less. So hopefully that trend continues. But then that trend is also going to be offset by the fact that now he's going up against the opposing team's starting centers and not their backups. And so I, I think anybody penciling in Shingun for 30-plus minutes per game, that's a little aggressive, in my opinion. Like, maybe he can handle it, and you take that as a bonus if it happens. But I, but for me, I'm reasonably, like, saying – I'm guessing he's probably in, like, the mid to upper 20s to start in minutes per game. And if he can get more than that, you take it as a bonus, but you don't count on it. And so that's where, you know, maybe they sign a veteran free agent center on the market, like a Robin Lopez, JaVale McGee, that type, that yeah. can sort of – fit in your minutes maybe you give some to Boban if it's against you know a true traditional big and you need that type of size um my personal preference would be giving more minutes to Garuba and trying to see what you have there because I think now that you have Eason one of the impacts of having Eason is that um you may need long term for Garuba to sort of fit in this puzzle you may need him to be available to play the center spot because Eason's going to do a lot of what you originally drafted Garuba to do at the forwards especially so maybe that pushes Garuba a little bit more towards the front court uh when I say front court I mean power forward and especially center yeah. rotation and so maybe um he plays a role I hope he does behind Shingun but I would say if there's a minutes question compared to the consensus expectation I would say I'm I'm higher on Eric Gordon than most people I've seen some suggesting he back up and 20 minutes per game again I just don't see it. I mean, that's just not what the evidence suggests that the Rockets view of Gordon. And personally, I agree with them. I think he's still a very impactful player. My favorite Eric Gordon stat, I pointed this out a few days ago. Uh, you throw out the 1-16 in 16 start last year, which was the Tice Wood like spacing disaster, which yes. was just an enormous cluster. So the last 65 games, when they had like proper spacing and tried to be a functional NBA offense, um, <laughs> they were 18-25 and 25 when Eric Gordon played. That's a 34-win pace. Wow. That, that's that's like play-in range. That's literal. That's respectable. That would have given yeah. you, you know, on the verge of beating out uh, San Antonio for one of those play-in spots. And when he didn't play, they had one win. They were on a win pace yeah. of less than four games for the full season. And again, that sample is not. Um, it's not nothing. Again, eighteen and twenty-five. That's over half the season. Yeah. So that tells you that Eric Gordon has a big impact on winning. So that's why I'm higher on Gordon than I think the consensus. I think if he stays, you pencil him for around thirty minutes or so. And I am lower on Shingun. Not necessarily I'm lower on his game, but I just think that I would tap the brakes on. You know, I've seen some suggesting that he's going to get, you know, 30, 35 minutes like a yeah. true starter. I would tap the brakes on that until you see it, because with his fouling history and going up against starters, uh, that to me is where the question mark is. So maybe you bring in someone through free agency. Maybe you give more minutes to uh, Garuba. Maybe you could see some, even some small ball Jay Sean Tate scenarios. You know, they've experimented with Tate at the five and yeah. doses here and there in the past. Maybe that's something you do. And Jabari Smith's extra length and wingspan, same with Easton. Maybe that gives you some added flexibility. But to me, it's the center spot on the depth chart. That, that's where I think the most intrigue is when it comes to next season. 
Yeah, it's interesting you bring about the small ball because um, we were talking to uh, a couple other scouts uh, previously, and they were saying that a lot of times they, they feel that Atari Eason may actually be a better fit at power forward um, just because of the type of game he has. So, I mean, that's interesting to see as far as maybe sometimes you do have a Jabari Smith playing center in small doses. Of course, you're not going to be playing him you know, 20, 30 minutes a game at center. But that, that's, that gives them a lot of flexibility when it comes to that. And another point about Eric Gordon is, I mean, for most of the season, Eric Gordon was a top five three-point shooter last year. So, I mean, yep. that gives you another shooter um, in that starting lineup. And I know a lot of people like to, you know, want to play all the young players 30-plus minutes a game. But that's not really a, a great idea when you have a, a bunch of young players to have pretty much no leadership at all on the court. And I think Eric Gordon does provide that, especially on the defensive end as well, because, I mean, he knows about pretty much every rotation known to man when it comes to the NBA at this point. So he's not going to be surprised by anything. So you definitely need that type of, you know, defensive presence on the court. Yeah. Yeah. I want to ask you quickly about Garuba. Um, Do you think there's any chance that if they do bring in a a veteran center that can play 10 or 15 minutes a game, that they may still – put him in a G league to start the season. Cause even though they have him in a G mm-hmm. last year, he only played five games with the Vipers because of injuries and going back and forth between the yeah. Rockets. Do you think there's any chance that maybe they still start the season with him with the Vipers so they can actually get some yeah. real playing time? I think it's at least possible uh, depending yeah. on who they sign. And, you know, some of this I think will be sorted out at summer league. Yeah. You don't want to draw too many conclusions with the rookies at summer league, but I do think that, like the guys like Garuba and Christopher, although Christopher has a, long leash, understandably. He's earned it from his play last season. But I do think, like, in general, a guy like Garuba, you want to see them play well at Summer League because a lot of the competition is going to be the rookies that were just drafted. And in theory, the guys that have been through the rigors of NBA life, and in the case of Garuba, international professional life as well, he should have an advantage. So I I hope to see progress from Garuba in, in Summer League. If he doesn't, then yeah, the G League, I would not rule it out because the bottom line is he does need to play. You're, you're you're right on the money when it comes to that, is that he needs a role, be it in the NBA, the G League. The biggest story for him last season, he just wasn't able to stay on the court. And, yeah. you know, you want him to play. And if he's not ready for the NBA, you don't want to force it to to your point about not playing all the young guys 30 plus minutes. Yeah. That's what people on Twitter don't fully get. It's not just, you don't just organically magically play 30 plus minutes per game and then just develop. But anyway, the point I was trying to make, um, you develop guys with the proper habits and you don't get them to do too much too soon. That's what we were saying early in the podcast about Jabari is that in Houston, because you have these guys like Jalen to a lesser extent, KPJ and Shingun, he won't have to do too much in terms of shot creation and passing playmaking too soon. Uh, he can develop those at his own pace. And the same holds true with, uh, with anybody else. If Garuba isn't ready for whatever reason for the NBA level, then yeah, you do look at having him in the G League because A, he needs to play and B, he needs to build confidence. And that's why you don't just throw guys in there for you know 30 plus minutes per game just because they're young because they're not going to develop in the right way if they get their confidence shattered and they're just not developing um, in the way the Rockets need them to develop. It's a very methodical process. And so that's why, you know, A, I, you know, Garuba is at a point in year two. He needs to play. Hopefully we see something at, Sugar, at uh, Summer League. But then too, I just think that you've got to have these guys um, developing in the right way. And that's why you just can't say 30 minutes at the NBA level, done deal, sink or swim, because that's how you develop bad habits. You want these guys to focus on what they're good at, improve their weaknesses over time. And the way you do it you know, gradually is by not putting the burden of 30, 35 minutes on a guy when they're not ready. Yeah, exactly. I mean, even with Garuba, I mean, we, like you say, we saw flashes, but at the same time, again, you know, we only saw clips of him, you know, playing overseas before he got to the Rockets and we didn't get to see a lot of him uh, last year. So he's still kind of in the, honestly, the rookie stage of his career to where we just haven't saw enough of him uh, playing to really get a good idea about him. Uh, One more question I want to ask you before we uh, end the show I know it's kind of hard to kind of, you know, predict this when we haven't even got to a summer league play, but do you see the Rockets, you know, approving on their record from last year? Do you see them being a bottom team? I don't expect them to win enough games to where they're actually competing for play-in next year. I don't really see that type of growth. But yeah. do you see them at possibly being having a worse record again, or do you see them more in probably the three to seven range as far as where they can end up being in next year's draft? Yeah, I, I see them improving – a little bit uh, yeah. 
it's just I don't want to put too many expectations on them. I mean, first off, even if they're younger, they're going to be a substantially more talented team, especially defensively. That was their big uh, weakness a year ago. And so they're going to have a ton more skill on that side of the ball. Silas has talked about opening up the playbook more. And I do expect, you know, you should see some growth from both Jalen and KPJ going into next season. So I think you'll be better. It's just that optimism should be tempered with the fact that, A, they're still incredibly young, and B, we're at almost an unprecedented time in the NBA where there's hardly anyone that's in that tanking tier. Everybody is trying to win. Even traditionally, you know, you typically go into a year and you can say four or five teams per conference that you know aren't going to be competitive. And to look at, you know, like five years ago, like Minnesota and Sacramento were examples of teams that were almost never in the mix. Whereas now even teams like that are going for it and making aggressive yeah. win now moves. So even if the Rockets are better, the competition, especially in the West, is just so steep. There may not be any super teams, but there's just so much depth in the current NBA that until the Rockets, you know, make some more veteran additions, which is probably going to be from now when they have all that cap space, it's hard to see them, you know, jumping a lot of teams. But with that said, I do expect to see some growth, and you should, because the other thing too, this is year three for Steven Silas. I think he's going to have every incentive to push this team hard to show growth, yeah. because again, the Rockets after next season are going to have a choice to make on Steven. Is he the guy long term? And I, you know, I don't have any reasons to doubt that at this point. I mean, he's been dealt like the worst hand of all time, <laughs> yes. but at the same time. You know, if they just have the worst record every year and don't have any growth at all, (laughs) at some point, you know, it becomes tough to just keep writing, you know, blank checks and, you know, blindly assuming that it's going to work out. And so I think, you know, not just the guys on the court, but Steven as well, they have every incentive to show some growth. So, you know, I want it to work out because Steven's a great guy. I do think he's a very good coach. I think he gets a very unfair rep on Twitter. Um just based on the fact that so many of these issues are out of his control and people want a more complex playbook. that are so young, especially in the backcourt. Kevin Porter Jr. is first year as a point guard. Jalen Green, 19 years old, just first year in the NBA period. You know, these more complex plays, you're going to you're going to blow their minds are going to short circuit because you're doing too much too quickly. And so you do have to go more gradually than a lot of people, uh, at least on social media would like, but I do think, you know, we heard after last season, that was one of Steven Silas's themes that they're going to be more aggressive in opening up the playbook. And with that, and along with the young guys, you know, last year was really the first year of the, the true first year of the rebuild. I know the year before, uh, technically was when it started, but honestly, that was the James Harden farewell season. It was all overshadowed by that. Last year was the first year in which you really started to have the real building blocks. They should get better. And, you know, you've added high draft picks in this year's draft and you should be a more talented team. And you do, you know, Steven Silas has every incentive to show that. And so I do think it's fair to have a better record than 20 and 60. I think that's a reasonable, or 20 and 62. Uh, You should have that as a, expectation going in barring extreme injuries but at the same time i would say modest improvement maybe going from 20 to 25 but nothing extreme nothing against them it's just more that the landscape of the nba is such that even if the rockets are better the, the fact is the way the nba is currently constructed there's not really any super teams but there's also not very many bad teams so yeah. when you are a bad team you probably need um a lot more than just a couple of rookies to truly climb up the ladder. You probably need, you know, marquee veteran additions. And, you know, as we've talked about before, the Rockets, that's probably going to have to wait until 2023. Yeah, exactly. I think that's a great point. People always seem to forget when they want them to teams to purposely tank. Um, These players are playing for contracts. They're not trying to play bad enough to where they get a high draft pick next year and people, and then those players are going to take in their job. And the same thing with Coach Silas. I mean, Mm -hmm. All this is going on his record. I mean, at some point, he doesn't want to be the – I mean, I'm sure right. right now he doesn't want to be the worst team, but they understand the progression of what they need to do. But yeah. at some point, they want to start actually winning games. So yeah. people they're need to understand to, that. Yeah, yeah, they're going to need to see something. And while I think the people in the Houston front office and ownership, you know, they're not counting on a big move in the standings until the 2023-2024 yeah. season, you do want to see something next year exactly. that gives you confidence that Steven is the guy and – while it's not everything, wins and losses do play at least some role in that, even for a young team. Yeah, exactly. A great point. Um, before we wrap it up, um, definitely, like I said before, it was great talking to you. I listened sure. to you for years before I even Appreciate started doing, even thinking about doing podcasts. So definitely been great talking to you today. But uh, before we go, could you just let everybody know again where to find all your great content? Yep. Uh, ben Dubose on Twitter, the Rocketswire on Twitter, and uh, rocketswire.usatoday.com. That's for all the print content. 
contact and uh, content, excuse me, yeah. said contact because I'm watching the Astros just had a bloop <laughs> single to extend their lead to 3 nothing yeah. in the ninth. Uh, by the way, they still have a zero in a certain column, not going to jinx oh, it. But yeah, besides the, yeah, I know. Uh, that's McTaggart's game, not me. But yeah, besides the written content, also check out the Logger Line. It's my new uh, podcast series, at least for the off season, partnering with uh, Carbach Brewing and Sports Talk 790 on that. And so, yeah, just search for the Logger Line at your podcast distributor of choice, and you should be able to find that. Just put up an episode yesterday with uh, Michael Scotto of Hoops Hype previewing free agency and recapping the draft. So, rocketswire.usatoday.com and uh, the logger line on your podcast listening provider of choice. Uh, definitely. Again, I appreciate you coming on. We're going to definitely have you on again because we're going to have plenty of time between now and before the season starts to sure. uh, talk rocket. So again, thank you for coming on today. Ben. Sure thing. Thanks for having me. Of course. And uh, that's going to do it for today's episode. As usual, we appreciate everybody coming on and joining us on Rocket Fuel. Uh, we'll be having shows uh, every week, especially once Summer League kicks off because we're going to have a lot to talk about then. So again, I appreciate everybody listening and eventually watching on our YouTube channel. Uh, so make sure you subscribe to that as well. Well, uh, as usual, make sure you come back next week for our next episode of the Rocket Fuel Podcast presented by Clutch Fans.